0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org.
1: The sermon text for today is 2nd Samuel 22. 2nd Samuel 22 if you will please turn there with me. Here's the word of the Lord says And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul He said The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge my savior You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, And my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The the, foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. You are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The way of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of the deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. And did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance, who brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if you don't supply, we don't have. At the end of the day, when we open your word and we read, we seek understanding. We seek to know. We seek to apply. But we would be a confused people if you do not supply understanding. So we pray right now that as we read your word and as we hear what it means and how it applies to our life, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would open our minds and our ears and our eyes, that we might see what is written in your word and hear what it means for us and believe in our hearts that you truly are our sovereign Lord, our master, and our king, that we might apply this word to our lives and live by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My kids uh, love for me to tell them stories. So at night, they want me to tell them stories of when I was growing up and the things that I did, and I get bonus points if I got in trouble in those stories. They want to hear specifically about the bad things that I did and the ways that I got punished because of those bad things. Now some of the stories that I tell them, particularly when they were a lot littler, some of them were funny and some of the stories that I tell as I'm telling them are bringing back memories. Some of them bad memories. <laughs> some, of them, some of them painful memories that I have to walk through. Uh, and relive over and over again. Sometimes they're fond memories, and sometimes they're even awkward things, things that I had to live through and I've got to relive through every time they want me to tell those stories. And some of them are incredibly, incredibly painful. And and not just in the, I can't believe I did that kind of thing, but in a way that calls to mind all the kind of person that I was, uh, the kind of choices that I made the kinds of things that I regret, some stories that I hadn't told them until they were a little bit older, things that I did that I'm not proud of, that I wish I hadn't done, stories that serve as a warning to them. Don't don't do that when you're in that position. I wonder, as you look back across all the many stories that you've probably collected throughout your life, how do you understand all of those things? How do you understand your life up to this point? It's a series of decisions that you've made, connection points along the way, that has brought you into this room this morning. As you think back on all of those stories, if you're like most of us, you probably have separate categories where each of those stories live. Some of those stories are scars to you, things that represent choices that you wish you hadn't made, things that you wish you hadn't done. Maybe some of them are stars in your life, things that are bright spots, things that you wish you could relive over and over and over again, highlights of your life, if you will, scars and stars. We're here at the end of the books of First and 2 Samuel. We've actually, counting this one, only four sermons left in this book. And these last few stories are of David's kingdom, and they have a way of summarizing everything that we've seen in the books of First and 2 Samuel up to this point. Now, this is a pretty lengthy text. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go through this passage verse by verse. Uh, it's 51 verses in total, but it's put here at the end of 2 Samuel as sort of a summary of David's life. It's it's, if you will, a lens that we should look through to see how David's life has unfolded thus far. It's a summary of the Lord's salvation. It, it's in a sense a way that David would put an exclamation point on all of the things that have happened in his life. And it ends basically the same way it begins: the Lord is my salvation. He's my rock of refuge. And it's the way we should be seeing David's scars and his stars. This passage is a duplication of Psalm 18. If you were to turn to Psalm 18, you would see nearly the exact same passage. There are microscopic differences that are not even worth exploring. You might have a word in Psalm 18 that its synonym is here in 2 Samuel 22. Very few words are different between the two passages, otherwise it is nearly an exact duplication of Psalm 18. Now, many think that this psalm was written at the middle point or earlier in David's life. Essentially, up until the point where he had an affair with Bathsheba. Because I think we can all recognize in 2 Samuel, at the point of 2 Samuel chapter 11, when there's there's a big scene that takes place between David and this woman on a roof, where he takes her, he kills her husband, and everything after that turns south. His kids rebel against him, the sword never departs from his household. And when we get to this passage in 2 Samuel, it's difficult as you look at it to imagine David after that, having written this psalm. I, however, i am not convinced. <laughs> I think this actually might be toward the end of his life. As you read the psalm, it does give this impression of this very young, very confident king, not something like the seasoned and humbled king that you find later on at the end of 2 Samuel. Nevertheless, Here we are. We have five stanzas that are in front of us, but the first and last stanza are essentially setting the tone for the psalm as a whole. In verses one to four, David calls the Lord his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, and in verse four, he is worthy to be praised. And then in the last five verses of the psalm, starting in verse 47, all the way to the end, David restates most of it again. The Lord lives, he says. Blessed be my rock. Salvation he brings to his king. So essentially, if we were to just take a step back, it's often very hard in a psalm this long, But if you can take a step back from it and think about what the psalm is communicating as a whole, this psalm is a psalm of praise and it's built on a foundation that David is laying of what God has accomplished on his behalf. So if we're to summarize it, that's what we would say. God is accomplishing salvation on behalf of his king and the king's kingdom. And it's all what God has done. He says here in verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, that is the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. David is is setting this scene for us as we get further into the psalm where he's being brought to the brink of death and he's being surrounded by all of his enemies. And in verse 7, he cries out to the Lord and he says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. So the Lord hears his cry and he answers him. And the rest of of the stanza is David giving these big poetic expressions of how the Lord reached down and saved him from being conquered from these real and physical enemies that were around him. And we get in verse eight, the Lord depicted as this, uh, it sounds to me like a big dragon, like a dragon that's on your side, a dragon that you kind of want to see, right? The, the big ferocious animal of sorts that comes down to rescue you have that image in your head here in verse eight look with me it says then the earth reeled this is in response to david's cry that comes to the ears of the lord in verse eight then the earth reeled and rocked the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire came from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed Forth. You'll remember in the book of transitioning between 1st Samuel and 2nd Samuel, shortly after gaining the throne from Saul, after Saul died there at the end of 1st Samuel, David begins to lead Israel into these military campaigns, and he has victory after victory after victory, and he eventually unites the northern and southern tribes together, and they're all under him. they kind of, for the first time ever, are really united under David. And they're entering battle after battle, and they're clearing out enemies that were supposed to be driven out when Israel came into the Promised Land that weren't. And so he's going in, and he's leading the the armies to drive these people out. And all of this we saw at the beginning of 2 Samuel, shortly after Saul died and David gains his throne. And, and what we've seen is that all the way up until he has the affair with Bathsheba in chapter 11, the Lord is giving David victory after victory, and the Lord is continually saving David from his enemies. And the writer of 2 Samuel is very clear, all the way back in chapter 8, all the way up to this point, he says 8 and and verse 14, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David is experiencing uh, just a plethora of blessing from the Lord. And here we get to the end of the book, and he's looking back over his life of sorts and seeing very much what the Lord has brought him to. And so he, in all of this, David basically expresses in this psalm the reason why he needed the Lord's help. And it's there in verse 18. He admits it. He says, He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. So, essentially what we're finding in this psalm, what David is expressing, is that he was brought to the end of himself. He got to the point in his life, on the brink of death, surrounded by his enemies, where he realizes Exactly what the theme of 1st and 2nd Samuel has been, and we've talked about this a number of times: not by might shall man prevail. And it's through these trials and these tribulations that David is brought to a point of weakness. This is not something that you would find in the annals of the kings throughout history. There's not going to be a king, think about it, in any of the discoveries in Egypt or Babylon, or some of the cultures that are out there in the ancient Near East, that's going to say, and the king realized he was simply too weak to handle his enemies. And yet here you get this shocking moment of honesty, right in the middle of the Bible, when the greatest king that Israel has ever known comes to the end of his life, and he sees all the victories that he's had, And instead of waxing poetic on all the victories that he's had and says, look how great I was, he says, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. David is not casting all the glory on himself. Rather, looking back at his history He's throwing it all to the Lord who was the one who came to His support. His enemies were too strong and all of His trials and all of the people and all of His enemies that were around Him exposed His weakness and it's out of that weakness that He's crying out to the Lord for the Lord's rescue. But then He closes the stanza by saying why the Lord came to His rescue. In verse 20, He says, He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Why? Why was it that the Lord came to David's rescue in that time of need? Was it because, you know, David is a swell guy. Was it because, you know, David is handsome and impressive, And he has a lot of good hair. I hope not. All right? For my sake. And for some of you. All right? Let's just be honest. Was it because David had so many good things about him that were impressive to the Lord? So many acts of righteousness that the Lord looked at and said, you know what? It's because of these things that I will save you. It's certainly going to look like that in a minute. But this this moment of clarity, he says, he rescued me. Because he delighted in me. Why? Why has David found favor with the Lord? Because David has found favor with the Lord. That's not an answer. The Lord saved him because it pleased the Lord to save him. There's a moment where we sometimes come to in our lives where we realize, I am only here Because the Lord wants me to be here. If not, I would be gone. There's a moment of humility we have to come to where we realize we're creatures. We are not the Creator, we are not the shepherds of our own domain, we are sheep. We are His sheep. We're created for Him, to Him, and we serve at His pleasure, and He saves us, He rescues us like He does David, simply because it pleased Him to do so. So David owes his rescue to the fact that God chose to delight in him and for no other reason. Remember, David is the weakest of his brothers. David is the youngest of his brothers. He's certainly not impressive. He's not the tallest. He's not the best looking. All of his brothers have height on him that goes on for days. He's watching sheep. And the Lord says, I look at the heart. Simply because the Lord delighted him. But he goes a little bit further in the next stanza, and this is where I think the Psalm might make us in the New Testament a little bit uncomfortable with some of the things that David says. Some of the things that he says, the New Testament Christian might say, "Oh wait, wait a minute, David, I don't think you have your theology quite right. He opens the second stanza, which goes from verse 21 all the way to 31. He opens with this. He says in verse 21, "...the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness." Wait, what? That wasn't what you just said. "...according to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not, act, have not wickedly departed from my God." For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And then in verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Doesn't it sound kind of like David is saying, I'm the humblest guy I know. The implication here, really made explicitly clear elsewhere in the rest of the Bible, is that God does not save everyone. That much is true. That He saves the humble. We see that repeated time and again in the Bible. He saves the righteous. In fact, he says in verse 27, David says this, "...with the purified you deal purely, with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous." evil people, in other words, tend to think of the Lord as evil, and they tend to see him as more evil as the days go on. But those who are humble and pure tend to think of the Lord as someone worth depending on. Now, some people think that David wrote this, obviously, before his affair with Bathsheba, because after that, David is much more humble. How could David get to the end of his life after doing what he's done, what we've known he's done, and say, I was so humble, and I was righteous, and I didn't turn from your way. I kept your way all the way through, and and that is why you saved me. Obviously, it seems like he wouldn't have written this at the end of his life because David knew that he wasn't exactly the example of purity by the time he got to the end of his life, right? Right? But you understand that even at the beginning of David's reign, he knew himself to be less than blameless. And he even credited all his good with the providence of the hand of God. Remember, he wants to build God a temple with his own hands. God makes a promise to him, a covenant with him, and he understands the covenant that God has made with him as something that's too great for him. That's something that he doesn't deserve. This is something that God gave to him. He even feels conviction. If you go all the way back into 1 Samuel, he feels conviction over cutting Saul's robe. You remember that in the cave? And he he even he I mean the Lord actually just cripples him right there, breaks his heart as he confesses what he's done, and he he resolves not to ever do that again. So whether it was God saving him from committing sin against others, or the Lord convicting him about committing sin, David certainly knew very early on that it was the Lord who saves him. He was not overconfident in any way. David here is celebrating the fact that the Lord judges in accordance with his standard of righteousness and not by some other standard. David is essentially expressing Lord, here is how you judge. It's by your standard of righteousness. Your perfect measuring stick. The haughty, as an example in verse 28, he brings low. The merciful, the blameless, the pure, he rewards. So in all of life's circumstances, David is essentially lifting up the idea that the Lord measures all people in accordance with a perfect measuring stick. So in other words, it doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're powerful or weak, in judgment, God is going to measure everyone according to His absolutely perfect measuring stick. Okay, I got good news and I got bad news. Which one do you want first? You don't have a choice, I'm giving you the good news first. The good news is how else would you want it? Do do you want a judge who has eternity hanging in the balance, whose standards of right and wrong can be persuaded, can be bought, whose eye could be turned? I don't think so. Especially not if the person in front of you in line to be judged has more money than you do. You certainly don't want His eye to be persuaded by cash, by power, by influence. So essentially, this is good news. It's praiseworthy that God is not a kind of judge that would have any other measuring stick, or a measuring stick that He changes on a whim to whatever He wants. But He upholds a righteous standard by which all people are measured. So in other words, then the haughty, the ones who are prideful, are brought low. The crooked, tortured. The humble, exalted. That's his standard. Now for the bad news. Something of a catch-22, if you will. I would want that of a judge. I, I wouldn't want a judge who looks the other way on injustice. In other words, if I'm standing behind Hitler in line to be judged, I want him to get all that's coming to him. I do. That's in here. At the same time, I don't want to be measured by that righteous measuring stick. In fact, if any of us Or to stand in the courtroom of God. Not against the person next to us, or behind us, or in front of us. But measured up against God's measuring stick of holiness. None of us are going to make it. All of us are going to fall short. Jesus even lays out this standard in the New Testament. Lest you think for just a second, well this is an Old Testament thing. How about Matthew 5.48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you like that? Just memorize that verse. very easy. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let that encourage you all the days of your life. But here's what it means to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. When you do, you start to realize that David is speaking even further beyond the end of his nose than even he can comprehend. That when David records this in Scripture, it is true in his day. And he's speaking on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people that he serves as king. And yet god has superintended his words to transcend the gap between the old testament and the new testament to be read by us today and lead our minds not to think of david but to think of his great 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 grandson jesus david knows and we get glimpses of it in this passage david knows that his salvation has not come from His own perfection, in spite of what we just read. He knows that His salvation has not come from His own perfection. He knows that it is God who is the one who has saved Him. So He knows that His righteousness doesn't come from the work of His own hands, and that He didn't do something that God might look down and say, I'm really impressed by what you did, now I'll save you. How do we know He knows that? We'll look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Wait, wait, look back at verse 24. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. David says this is why he saved me. But how did he become blameless before him and keep himself from guilt? Well, he says right here in verse 33 that God, who is his strong refuge, has made his way blameless. You see that? 34 He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me before set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war. 36 You have given me the shield of your salvation. 37, you gave a wide place for my steps under me. Look at verse 40, for you equipped me with strength. You made those who rise against me sink under me. 41, you made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. There is a physical salvation from His enemies that David has experienced. And he is recognizing with the utmost of sobriety what is the cause of his salvation. And plainly put, it is the Lord and the Lord only that is to be credited. Not just for David's physical salvation, but for David's conviction of sin. For David's offering of sacrifice of repentance. For David's forgiveness that he found after offering sacrifices of repentance. All of the things that David needed in order to come before the Lord in sincerity of heart, David recognizes God gave to him. You see that? David is crediting God for all of those things. So first, let's make sure we understand that David is experiencing the physical salvation from a physical enemy. He even says at the opening, the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So he is recognizing that God, over the course of his entire life, in all the calamities that he has faced, God has been there time and again, saving him from the hand of all these people that would seek to kill him. David's righteousness and blamelessness is also not meaning that he never sinned. In fact, what he's saying about that is that I have, as a result of my sin, come before the Lord in confession and sacrifice. But it was the Lord that brought me to that place. So the reader is very aware here at the end of 2 Samuel of all the things that have taken place in David's life. We're under no illusion. David is perfect at all, and David is not either. But in those cases where he sinned, he's genuinely repentant. When he's confronted, he's offering sacrifices. This was not out of some piousness. It was a genuine conviction that he felt in his heart to come before the Lord. And even this, David acknowledges, God empowered through God's covenant love with David. David is recognizing something like what we see the hymn writer John Newton say, In his great hymn, Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Yet at the same time, David is speaking to deeper realities than perhaps even he is aware at the moment. Not coincidentally... Some years later, a grandson of David's will soon come forth from his line who can take David's words as written and not figuratively apply them like David does. David saying he is pure and blameless meaning it figuratively, after he sins, he comes in sacrifice. David's great-great-grandson will come forth from his line and take David's words, which are meant in ambiguity, and apply them literally to himself. Do you see that? Where now, Christ is applying them as blameless, but meaning he never sinned. So reading this text with New Testament eyes, we can see that it is Jesus who died and who rose from the dead who can truly say, I was blameless before Him and I kept myself from guilt and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. Do you see how Jesus can take the words of His great-grandfather David and apply them literally to Himself and mean that He was indeed sinless Before God. But the beauty of what we find in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that this righteous king is clean and his sight, in the sight of God, he's blameless. And what does he get because of his blamelessness? He gets rewards. He says there in that verse, And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Jesus reaps all the rewards, but the good news of Jesus Christ is that this king, perfect though he was, goes to the cross anyway, faces the wrath of God on my behalf, and takes all the rewards that he rightfully earned and gives them to all the members of his kingdom by faith. See, David's salvation from his enemies, his physical worldly salvation from his enemies is physical salvation for his kingdom all the members of his kingdom benefit by david being alive their king lives he's conquered his enemies the lord has granted him that but at some point in david's life comes death we're going to read his last words in the next chapter next week at some point comes david's death what happens then well it's up in the air but with Jesus, not only does He die on my behalf and suffer the wrath of God on my behalf, He then gives to me the righteous rewards that He earns. And then in His resurrection, it can be said both of, of Him both that He was blameless and, like it says in verse 44, that God kept Him as the head of the nations and that people whom He had not known served Him. Jesus can both die, rise again, and still serve as king and head of the nations. To make matters even worse. Or better, maybe? The word for nations is the same word for Gentiles. So you could be read, God kept him as the head of the Gentiles too. That people whom he had not known served him. When you read the Old Testament text with New Testament eyes, you can't help but see that the true fulfillment of this passage is none other than Jesus Christ. So it's precisely because of what Christ has done as the true owner of this psalm and the one whom this psalm is actually about that you and I can then read the psalm for our benefit too. Now, we can see, surely, our own sin. Yet, at the same time, can't we also say that because of Christ, God has made our way blameless? Certainly, you and I commit sins every day. Sins against each other. Sins in our own heart that no one else will ever know about. But we have a Lord because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ who died on our behalf we have a Lord who will not count our sins against us. What do you call that, church? Blameless. So can't we look at this passage and say, because of Christ's atoning work, I benefit from these blessings too. Because of Christ's atoning work, because of the salvation He has given to me, God has become my rock of refuge. God has become the shield of my salvation. You understand, this psalm is placed here at the end of 2 Samuel as a synopsis of David's journey from shepherding a flock of sheep, saving them, those sheep, from the paw of the bear and from the paw of the lion, like we saw last week, to throwing rocks at giants and taking them down and cutting off their heads, to fighting Amorites and Ammonites and Jebusites and Parasites and all kinds of other sites, to fighting the sinfulness of his own heart. And the conclusion that he comes to is, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. This is the author of Samuel capping a long history of God's salvation of David and of the nation of Israel through David. Now, I wonder what would happen if you were to look at all the stories that you've accumulated in your life so far. The scars and the stars. I wonder what would happen if you were to look at those through New Testament eyes. I wonder what would happen if you were to see the scars and the stars, not simply by the way they made you feel at the time, not simply with the mountains of regret that some of them bring up, or or the feelings that I want to relive those days. I wonder what would happen if you looked at them not like that, but instead by what, was, what God was doing in them at the time. There are times, don't we get the end of all of the trials? We look back and we go, I can see now what I couldn't see then. I can see now what God was doing in and through some of those moments of deep tragedy. There's a day coming, folks, when we will have an entirely different perspective on our whole life. It'll likely be at the end, the very end, I mean the moment we are on our deathbed. Or perhaps even we have gone to glory to be at the side of Jesus Himself. When all of a sudden we can see from the heights that only God knows, a proper perspective on all of those trials along the way. What all of those things were actually doing. Where we see, even though that brought me so much pain at the time, I see how God brought me to depend on Him more there than I ever did before. I remember talking with a friend of mine who was going through breast cancer. And it was one of the bad ones. Not that there's a good one. Just it was one of the ones that this kills tons of people. And I remember her getting that report and she called us and, and told us. And, and we grieved with her for a long time and, and prayed for her. And it was, I don't know how long, months, years later, that she conquered, she, cancer was defeated. And I remember talking to her afterwards, and she said, it's a mixed blessing. O- on the one end, I am happy that I get to see my grandkids grow up and and you know, live longer. But on the other end, I grew so close to the Lord during that time. And I'm afraid... That on this side I'm gonna grow further away. I have a feeling that all of our trials and tribulations will be like that. That we'll we'll get there and we'll realize what all they accomplished. You see, it's not just the stars that God brings to our lives that have a way of picking us up and drawing us closer to Him. In fact, far more frequently, it is the scars that bring us to a moment of dependence. That bring us to our knees. Where we can look back on our life and see a long history of God's salvation that has been brought to us. That was not just brought to us, but produced by all of those things along the way. Things that at the time We simply couldn't see or didn't want to see. And maybe if we look at those trials and the tribulations, the scars and the stars through New Testament eyes, maybe we can say also with David, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock of my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know in this room There is so much hurt and heartache and tragedy and grief. Things that have been years in the making that are hard to deal with. That are hard to look at. That are hard to wrestle through. That can't even be thought about without bringing up tears. I know. I know there are joys that are present in this room that we look back on with nostalgia wishing we could go back to that day and live that day over and over and over again I know Father we pray that you might take all of those things good and the bad and give us a fresh perspective give us eyes with which to see the hurts the hang-ups the heartaches the addictions all of the things that have brought us to this point in time where we are here confronted by your word where we are forced to admit that we are your creatures who are here at your behest, who are here in service to you, our King. And instead of seeing all those things that have happened in our life, perhaps even through gritted teeth, that we might come to say, blessed be your name. You give and you take away. Blessed be your name. Father, give us that kind of perspective on our life. Help us to see even now what you're accomplishing in and through all of the things that lift us up and bring us down, we pray, that we might glorify the name of Christ above all. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.